Do you want to brass him? Carson Sestouli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his fortnightly appearance in the program. It's his fortnightly appearance. He's the lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. It's Eric Longenhagen. Eric Longenhagen is the guest. And as he does every two weeks on the program, what Eric Longenhagen does here is to analyze all prospects of particular note in this case. The delights of the Cape Cod League, the Woodbat Collegiate Cape Cod League, and a few prospects of note from a game that I observed between Katuit and Bourne, including a couple of prospects from Duke. Uh, questions about some of the under and over slot bonuses to which players and organizations have already agreed. That's from the draft, of course. Uh, the bonuses to which those sorts of players and organizations have already agreed, and the logic of those over and under slot bonuses. Also, I forced Longenhagen to participate in an analogy uh, that I present to him concerning a quiche that I brought to a potluck for birthing class. A quiche that I neither heated fully nor thawed correctly. That very adorable analogy in what's to follow as well. What I will say right now, what Fangraph CEO David Alfman uh, would certainly like me to say right now, in which I will oblige him by saying, is that Fangraph's memberships exist for a reasonable fee. Uh, listeners of Fangraph's audio, readers of Fangraphs.com can support that site and all the great work that appears on it. And for a slightly less reasonable sum, those same readers and listeners can acquire an ad-free membership, an ad-free membership, which allows readers to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden of banner ads, thus facilitating not only faster loading speeds, but also emancipating one from the uh, the distortive effects of advertising. And with that advertisement having now concluded, let us move on uh, to our conversation. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Lead prospect analyst Eric Longenhagen. And when does it begin? Right now. But it was some sort of textual message with a photograph. And I think the, what was it, the ground temperature was like 130 or something? Yeah, I have my infrared thermometer, and on especially hot days, I'll just go outside and point it at the sidewalk. And it was up to 145 the one day. You can, I don't know. It's too, I think, I'm going to say it's too much. Yeah. Yeah, That's it's too much. excessive. We're going to get out of here pretty soon. It's been a week in Seattle. Uh, hey, so what do you – didn't you go to a game yesterday in the midst of that? Uh, two days ago I did, or Tuesday right, okay. maybe. Yeah, because like AZL is starting here soon, so there are a couple tune-up games going on this week, and so I went to I went to C1. It's weird, like your Eustachian tubes – expand and contract and the heat in the evening is strange Wait, you, the effect of heat on the eustachian tubes I just know that when it's really hot for yeah. AZL games and I go I feel like my eustachian tubes are clogged and like I can't hear properly at yeah, times really. I'm not sure what the deal with that is well, I assume it. I mean, it has a number of disorienting effects on the human body. I would assume. Yeah. Yeah, that's what you're talking about right now. Mm-hmm. I mean, you seem you're a little bit. I mean, I love you no matter what form you take, uh, Eric. But <clears throat> right now you seem to be you seem to be a little bit like a 
like a like a talking corpse in some ways, you know, like in a great way. Like I love you, you know that. <laughs> <laughs> but you seem to be oppressed right now by by uh, by the heat. Well, it's just like you want to do something mm-hmm. with your free time that doesn't just involve sitting in the same house that you work in, right? But and you can't you can't leave outdoors because it's dangerous for you. Yeah. You can't leave. You can't so it's a lot of movies. It's a lot of malls. And you're just driven into the corporate culture that you consciously try to avoid because it makes you miserable. But you're, you don't really have a choice but to participate in it if you're because you need to participate in something. You want to leave. Yeah, you want to leave your house. Yeah. Yeah. Well, uh. Uh, sorry to hear that. Might, might in I January, suggest, it'll I mean, be great. It'll be great. Yeah, it's great in January, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> um, hey, I, was, uh-huh. I would like to present you – could we begin – could I begin by presenting you with a metaphor, Eric? Sure. Because I was just eating a quiche, you know? Yeah. And allow me, to, allow me to tell you why I was eating the quiche. The, I was eating the quiche because yesterday we had our the final meeting of our birthing class. Oh, yeah, it's pretty actually. It's uh, well, of course, a couple of people had already had their kids, you know. Right. So they're sitting there with kids. There's some tears. I did not cry because I don't want to. I don't want to exhibit emotion in front of you know strangers. But here's something that uh, so we all it was a potluck, right? And Callie and I, uh, we were just getting back actually from Cape Cod, where where I saw a Cape League game. But momentarily, we'll get to that. <clears throat> so we picked up a quiche. A quiche, a frozen quiche at a local bakery, a good quiche, and uh, there were it, it's already it's already fully cooked, but it's frozen, so there are there are instructions for reheating the quiche, right? So it tastes like a like a newly cook, cooked quiche. But I said, you know, it's so hot out today. It was hot here, not not anything like your experience, but it was hot. I said, let's just bring the quiche in cold. And Callie said, oh, that's fine. But then I thought, well, what if it's not entirely thawed? You know, I said, what if the quiche is not entirely thawed? So last minute, I ended up putting it in to the oven, but for only like half the suggested time. So what I uh, what was produced essentially was a lukewarm quiche. Um, Not dangerous to anyone because, as I say, it had been cooked, Uh, but also not at the not at an ideal temperature for anyone. And so what I did was. I somehow ruined or nearly ruined a store-bought product that only required reheating. Okay? okay. Do you see what I'm saying to you, Eric, yeah, right yeah. now? Yeah. Okay. All right. And uh, I thought, uh, uh, is there any way I can extract um, any, uh, anything from this from my conversation with Eric Longenhagen? And it's the metaphor is um, red hot in this particular case because it – Here's what it made me think of. Those players who are perhaps promoted, right, uh, before the time that they're ready, um, but are not given ample time to develop at the major leagues and then maybe sent back down. Essentially, their their development time is effed with a bit by a team's perhaps aggressive or overly conservative promotion schedule, right, or an inconsistent promotion and demotion schedule. Does that is that is that making sense? Sure. Do you see what I'm saying? Do you see how it's like the quiche? Yeah. 
I waited on the quiche, and then I hastily warmed it up, but then I didn't warm it up sufficiently, and so it produced a. It was not as as it was not as ideal as it could have been. Is the idea? Mm-hmm. And then I said, "That's like a prospect, maybe." Like I remember, for example, but this is before. I mean, not that I know a lot about baseball now. This is before I knew uh, as much as I do now. Corey Patterson. Corey Patterson was a player, I think, whose whose development was um, was perhaps not addressed perfectly by the Chicago Cubs. And I feel like for years the Mariners, for example, would rapidly promote players to the major leagues. Um and even though they didn't, they were not experiencing necessarily uh, unfettered success in, in the minor league levels below that. And I was wondering if you could think of any examples of players, essentially, whose um, whose best outcomes have perhaps been thwarted, best possible outcomes for their careers have been thwarted by uh, by the development uh, by the, the team's choices. Well, yeah, Corey Patterson is a good one, right? He was a high school draftee and then was in the big leagues already at, like, age 20. So that sounds like someone who, especially whose skill set had a gaping hole, probably could have been left in the minors a little bit longer. Matt Wieters... And to be clear, to be clear, he ended up actually... I know probably many people don't remember it this way. I don't necessarily remember it this way. He actually had some decent seasons, mm-hmm. Corey Patterson. He had a five-win season. Did you know that? No, I did not know that there was one of those in there somewhere. Age 24. Now, that is like a lot of that is from his, uh, from what might be an inflated uh, fielding runs total. Okay. I know he had but the one you, year where he hit like 25 homers. Yeah, that was – and that's the same year. Okay. 24 – Home runs, 32 stolen bases. I don't know if we've talked about this before, but it's really hard to record a, a below-average season uh, uh, if you if you go 2020. It's almost impossible. Um, I don't know. Some of the guys who even worked out, you wonder, like Jason Hayward, uh, Giancarlo Stanton, maybe not Stanton so much, but like, uh, I guess some of Hayward's issues have been due to injury, but there are just some guys who will come up and they're, they'll succeed, but maybe not in uh, as notable a way as they would have if they would have been left to work on a thing or two in the minors. Um, what about a situation like you know, um, the relief guys, like Polly Philippe? Yeah, that's the name I was just going to bring out. The relief, the guys who uh, Roberto Osuna might qualify as this oh, type yeah, of right. player, who could have been developed as a starter, but was moved more quickly as a reliever, and then you just sort of get stuck in that rut. Um, what would you have done with? Yeah, there's. I mean, there's. That's like a whole genre of player, right? Naftali yeah. Feliz, you brought up Osuna, Trevor Trevor Rosenthal. Uh, was perhaps another one. There was always some sort of, you know, there's always conversation. There was conversation for like a few consecutive years about the prospect of uh, bringing Rosenthal into the rotation. Obviously, Araldus Chapman uh, uh, fits under that category. Daniel Bard was another player who 
might have been a you know if if handled a bit differently might have been a decent starter of course he was a shutdown reliever for like what one and a half years or something yeah Jonathan Papelbon was also a starting pitching prospect at one point right I mean I guess a lot of it's it's that it's not sucking it's not uh it's not particularly incisive to say that many of the best relievers were starting prospects that's frequently true right yeah I guess the question is how does the team make the decision uh, because sometimes sometimes a team uh, is looking for a short-term gain and a at a live arm at the minor league level can allow them to to realize that right to to get value uh, where maybe it wasn't av- uh, available for them at the major league level or you know from other teams by way of trade uh, but it could uh, it could potentially uh, be a long-term problem because there was always it seems like with a character like Feliz there's always a bit of, a bit of hand-wringing is like well should we let him start should we let him do that and eventually they did and then that didn't go well either yeah I don't think people realize I think I think a lot of our readers should keep in mind that big league teams are not operating with the same priorities at any given time the ones who are at the bottom of the standings conduct business very differently than the ones at the very top. Uh, so if the the clubs that are competing will do whatever it makes sense to help them continue to compete at the big league level that season, even if it means hamstringing someone's future development just to make the big league team marginally better this season. Mm-hmm. I've known of teams in that position who have had the opportunity to acquire better prospects, better long-term prospects as like secondary and tertiary pieces in a trade who have passed them up just to add a pitcher who might be like 26 years old at AAA but who they think is – a better option as their like eighth or ninth best starting pitcher than the guy they currently have just mm-hmm. in case they're hit with a rash of injuries and need to dip that deep into their starting pitching depth. Like they're, you're just, your priorities are totally different. Well, it's, a, it's interesting you mentioned that. Uh, Travis Sotrick wrote for the site today a piece about how the Pittsburgh Pirates might be best suited to address the, you know, Essentially, address how, how they contend with with the trade deadline, right? Because they're a team that still has, you know, they technically ha- have a chance at winning, and more than technically, like the projections even say they have like roughly what like a three to five percent chance of winning of of making the divisional series, which isn't huge, mm-hmm. but it's better than zero, which is a number which a number of other teams are quite close to. Right, it. and they've got a bunch of underperforming prospects. Like, Austin Meadows hasn't had a great season. Kevin Newman hasn't had a great season. Will Craig is having a horrendous season. And so if you're if you're Pittsburgh and you're sort of on the fence about what you want to do, how does the way your, your prospects are performing this season and what you might be able to get in return for them, how does that impact your decision-making? Right, and it's, uh, they're also experiencing a similar thing even at the major league level because Garrett Cole – 
has not been as good as he has been in previous years. Andrew right. McCutcheon was obviously a trade candidate at one point. He, they tried to trade him in the offseason. He's actually been much better over the past month or so, uh, but it's hard to say how that affects his value. So, But, of course, again, both of those guys they uh, are controlled for next year, and they could both be quite good next year, and that would make the Pirates good. But what's interesting is how they approach, to your point about how to approach a trade deadline, how to approach certain trade. Uh, they traded last year. They got they traded away Mark Melanson, like two months of Mark Melanson, or you know, two and a half months or something. Mm-hmm. And in that deal, they got Felipe Rivero. And I don't know. And I know that you maybe uh, just by necessity, almost for purposes of clearing up hard drive in your brain. Um, they, I don't know. Felipe Rivero has been like one of the top like five relievers in the majors this year. He's been better than Mark Melanson. Yeah, he's a guy who has always had. Starter stuff, like three above average to plus pitches. It's just been about the delivery. He's already broken once. Um, but yeah, like even the command and stuff. He's had he's got starter command. It's just you worry about that low arm slot, not from necessarily from an injury perspective, but from a splits perspective over multiple times through a lineup. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I've seen. I've seen a bunch of Rivera over the years. I saw him uh, blow out in Reading. Yeah, yeah. It was the it was the it was the first time I ever saw someone blow out in person, and it's the third. It's one of three times it has happened. Is it sickening? Uh, it depends how the pitcher reacts. Yeah, I guess so. Rivero's was not fun to watch. Oh, yeah. Uh, Ramon Morla was another one I saw. Was just sort of like. He went from throwing 97 to 99 to throwing 90, 91, and then mm-hmm. he just walked off the mound. <laughs> well, I guess it has different – I mean, I guess it can take different forms, right, precisely? Yeah. <clears throat> um, well, that's no good, yeah. I don't know if you remember uh, – well, it's happened a couple times. I happened to be watching a Red Sox game, like it must have been like the early 90s, when Frank Viola – he might have broken his arm as he was pitching. Um, and that was not – that didn't look good. Um, but anyway, uh, so – but this is – that's an example because I, I think that who knows what else they could have gotten. What Who else was on the table for right. the Pirates when they were looking for – when they were looking for value, for, you know, for a return on Mark Melanson? You have to assume, though, that, you know, that there was some sort of – there could be a player of equivalent overall value to Felipe Rivero, but who was at, you know, low A. And so, and therefore maybe had greater ceiling, but less present day value. But what they did was they took Rivero and, um, you know, Ray Searich fixed him somehow. And then, you know, and then what they got from it was one of the best relievers uh, in the in the majors. Now back to our quiche metaphor. Mm-hmm. Eric, uh, one player who actually, one player who made that transition from from reliever, full time reliever, to excellent starter, um, without issue, that was Chris Sale. I don't know if you remember, he was. I think he did. He come up. He he actually pitched in relief the same year in which he was drafted. Yeah, he was up really quick. Yeah, and that was a competitive White Sox team. The next year, 
He pitched exclusively in relief. He pitched. He made 58 appearances, no starts. Uh, pitched 71 innings, and then this, then the season after that, he became Chris Sale, major league starter. Roughly, I mean, producing numbers, you know, basically equivalent to what he's con- what he's producing now. He's been basically the same guy ever since. Um, so that that worked out well, but it it seems not to usually. Yeah, it's uh, I you know, for every Chris Sale, there are three or four Daniel Bards and Jabba Chamberlains and. The list is pretty long of guys who have they teams have tried to bounce back and forth and it just doesn't it doesn't typically work. I think early like with Sale his draft year it made sense because you're limiting his workload too. As you pull right. the guy out of college and you you know you you want to limit his innings somehow. So that made that makes sense. But um, but yeah it's 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 another. You know, like you said, with the quiche metaphor, it's just one of those things where you have a decision to make about what your priorities are as a club. And if it's to move somebody like like Houston this year with J.B. Bukowskis. The Astros got Bukowskis later than a lot of people thought he was going to go. He makes sense as a quick-moving reliever for them if they need him to be because they're a competitive club. Whereas another team might totally shut him down. They might see how poorly his final two starts of the season went and just make the decision to shut him down for the rest of the year. Whereas it's like with Houston, it might be the complete opposite. Wait, what are they going to do with him? Well, I don't know exactly what they're going to do with him, but if you – with Bukowskis, it's, it's – we're talking you're talking about a prospect who's 93 to 96 with a plus slider right now. Yeah. That guy could pitch in a in a big league bullpen right now. <laughs> so yeah, if, he could. If, if you're Houston and you're trying to win a World Series and you need bullpen help down the stretch, isn't this someone who you consider? I think it would be. Yeah, Let's but do of it. course, that's you know that assumes that the stuff. Did UNC that, in the College World Series? No, they're done because so he's he, done. He's done. He's done. He's done. UNC's out because he, in part, because he pitched poorly down the stretch. Mm. He had two bad starts to finish things up. Davidson lit him up. It's part of why he fell. Oh boy! Oh boy! So yeah, like as far as guys who fit the bill for what you're describing, it, it's rare. It's rare. It's not like I know every year we talk about this guy can move quickly as a reliever. This guy can move quickly as a reliever, but it never really happens. Zach Birdie still hasn't made his major league debut, has he? Tell me about Zach Birdie. Zach Birdie was a righty, the a righty reliever from Louisville. Um, you know, ninety eight to one hundred one above average changeup plus slider. Purely a relief prospect again. Mostly because he has that low near sidearm slot that just doesn't play for three or four times through a lineup. Uh, big league hitters, doesn't matter how hard you throw, if they see the ball that early, they're going to square it. Uh, but over an inning, two innings, it's fine. And with Birdie potentially uh, dominant. And... After Birdie was drafted, I saw him in the AZL because the White Sox have a tendency to run all of their prospects through each 
minor league level, they don't say, well, you're going right to high A. They run you through the bottom all the way up the ladder. So Birdie came to the AZL after the draft last year and looked, you know, like a big leaguer. But that's not a competitive club. So they can't afford to slow things down because of service time, because of because they want to work on this or that specific developmental thing. Uh, so even though he's ready to pitch in the big leagues, it's he's not. Would you like an update on Zach Birdie? Sure. Okay. Well, as you noted, uh, a, a keen observation by you, Eric Longenhagen. He did. He did. Um, he did go through almost every level. Uh, he uh, he pitched one inning with the rookie level team, the AZL, I assume, and yeah. then he went to that's the inning I saw. That's the inning I saw. Which you, you can saw find that on. inning. You can saw see it on the Fangraphs YouTube page. <laughs> yeah, there were there was only four batters. Mm-hmm. He he produced. Here's some here's some numbers from his single inning and the four batters he faced. Twenty five percent strikeout rate. You know, kind of he struck out one of four batters. Zero percent walk rate. 100% ground ball rate, so that's the three uh, – there were three balls in play, I gather, all on the ground. Mm-hmm. And a 50% swinging strike rate. Does that sound right? Yeah. Okay, yeah. And he I, he surrendered one hit on uh, what was essentially like Mariner's prospect. Chris Torres has this thing he does where he has like a swinging ball to – like a – where he intentionally tries to – create like a Baltimore chop into the middle infield and like each a row out of the box before someone can throw him out at first. That's how Birdie surrendered that hit. So it wasn't yeah. even like an actual hit. He then went to high A, double A, and he ended up in triple A uh, to end the season. And mm-hmm. he has now, he made nine appearances, six, pitched 16 innings at triple A last year. Was that triple A Charlotte? Does that mm-hmm. sound right? Triple A Charlotte? Uh, and he has returned to triple A Charlotte this year. And he's thrown – he's made 23 appearances, pitched 27 innings. And um, uh, you could nitpick if you would like. Um, you, I mean, he, he's he's recorded a high ERA, five runs per nine innings. But nothing really about the rest of his line suggests that that's going to be a problem, allowing runs at that, at that rate. He's recorded a strikeout rate. He's struck out exactly a third of the batters he's faced. So that's good. Mm-hmm. He's good. Yeah. He's probably good. He could probably pitch soon. Maybe he will. What do you think? But if they've already kept him if they've already if they've already kept him on the minor league team up to this point, then they probably will hold on for a little bit longer, right? Right. Again, if if this were uh the Diamondbacks or the Rockies, mm-hmm. he'd be in the big leagues. But it's the White Sox, so he's not. Okay. <clears throat> Uh, I don't know. Did we get anything out of this quiche? I ate the quiche. I ate the last slice of it for lunch today. Did you? That's nice. Yeah. Is it asparagus quiche? So I don't know if that appears. Just asparagus? There was nothing else going on? No, I guess just asparagus. Okay. Roasted, sautéed asparagus quiche. Um, let's see. I also, as I noted, uh, as I noted, Eric Loganagan, I was in the K- I went to a Cape League game. I would say... What is that typical pleasure. for you? Have you been to them? Do you go to the Cape Games every summer? Not all the time, but I had a family uh, event in the area. Okay. And uh, I went to see the Ketuit Ketaliers. They hosted a game against the Bourne Braves. 
Um, and uh, I would I would I endorse this highly. I endorse What's the What's a Ketelier? Uh, well, who knows? Okay. I'll do so. I'll perform some clandestine googling as I'm speaking to you. I'll but, do it. You talk. Okay, but my my real point is that uh, what an experience. No, you, first of all, do you know you pay zero dollars for a Cape League game? No, I didn't know that. You pay zero dollars. Uh, it's a it's a usually rather intimate field. I believe probably Katowice Field of the three maybe stadiums I've been is uh, maybe one of the nicer ones. Um, and you're just you're there. You're seeing basically the best like freshmen and sophomores in college baseball. Um, yep. I I I did not necessarily prime you for any of these, but I could tell you, for example, I could tell you a couple of facts. I think maybe like eight pitchers pitched, roughly eight, eight or nine, mm-hmm. bunch of because they're a bunch of relievers. Only one guy was sitting below ninety miles per hour, which is pretty impressive. No, obviously a number of them were there in relief. I saw uh, Ryan Feltner from Ohio State. Mm-hmm. Does that? I don't know if that name sounds familiar. It looks like he had a swing role with Ohio State this year. Uh, I saw him touch ninety eight, and he was sitting like ninety four to ninety six, ninety seven. That's. I mean, that's good. What's the lowest you could be drafted if you are? If you are touching, if you touch ninety eight, you're throwing ninety four, ninety six. Like the fifth round. Okay, right, okay. If you're a pure relief prospect, if you're a guy with like a mid-90s fastball and an average, above average breaking ball, uh, you're probably, you probably fit somewhere in that fourth to sixth round range. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I've found as I've covered like the draft on national level for three, four uh, years now that the pure relief guys are like typically in that right around the fifth round. But as I know, he may not be a pure relief guy. He did pitch in relief in this particular game. Uh, but he started a bunch for Ohio State this year, too. Yeah, he's um, – I know that – the I've heard that the arm acceleration there is, like, near elite. Um, I don't know what his numbers look like, but uh, I think people think he's going to throw strikes eventually, but um, he's not, like, surgical or anything right now. He did in this game. He threw strikes. So say that. There's an above-average changeup in there, too. So he's he's another one of these guys who it's like um, – that we've seen in the Big Ten lately where entering their draft year, they've split time between the bullpen and the rotation or they've been primarily in the bullpen. Are you going to say Tyler J? Are you going to say Tyler J? Sure. Yeah, sure. I'll say Tyler J. Are you saying J. Tyler J? Cody Sedlock was like that, too. I mean, he – he was more of a starting pitcher at Illinois than Tyler J was, obviously. But you know, there were still tell some me about Cody. About. Tell me Cody about Sedlock. Sedlock. Was, Cody Sedlock was the Orioles' first round pick in the 2016 draft out of Illinois. Okay. Who uh, has all the physical components you look for in a starting pitcher? Perhaps not a changeup, uh, but also who had strike thro- have strike throwing issues. And so there were scouts who just didn't think that he would be a starter in pro ball, and others who thought. Uh, and you get this a lot at the Big Ten schools. Now, once this is a cold weather prospect, who with more reps you can tighten that sort of stuff up, and so don't be so quick to relegate an arm like that to the bullpen. 
when there might be more development coming late than there typically is for uh, a similar pitching prospect who's at Florida or Miami. What can you tell me about the term Ketelier? I it, all that comes up when you Google it is the the team stuff. It has, everything has to do with the team. You might be able to go to the Ketelier's website and find like what why we named ourselves this dumb way. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> I've done that more than three hundred years ago, according to legend. Uh, Native Americans in the area bartered with early settlers for the land on which the villages of Katuit and Santuit now stand. The sure terms of the did. sale. I'm huh? sure there was so much bartering. The terms of the sale were a brass <laughs> kettle with a hoe with a hoe thrown in for good measure. Thus, the Katuit baseball team's nickname, the Kettleers, was derived from that early real estate transaction. And it's actually interesting because. Um, after the game, I went to a bar uh, a, a, in, in just around the corner from the park, and it was called the Kettle Ho. So there you go. It also had a ho. Ho was in the word. It was called the Kettle Ho. But apparently that's a reference to both the brass kettle and the ho. Uh, for which, God, I tell you, for whatever their virtues, the Native Americans <laughs> gave away a lot of land for... For... Kettles. Mm-hmm. I'm sure they were totally fine with it. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that's how they got their name. So that's an old, that's an old name. Uh, <clears throat> what? Here. I attempted to. Uh, I attempted to make my own sort of um, uh, rough pref list for for the game. You know, to pretend like I was a real like I was a real person. You know. I yeah, that's I was good. Doing. Who was the other guy you saw that threw hard? Oh, I saw, well, okay. So I saw a couple of other guys. The starter for the starter for Bourne was Ronnie Rosamondo, University okay. of Connecticut. He was doing pretty well. He uh, he he was probably well. He was the most successful of the two starters, I believe. And he was hitting uh, he was sitting at ninety one pretty easily. But I didn't know at the time. I was like impressed by ninety one, and I didn't know that everyone was going to be throwing that. I did see I did see Chase Shugart. A five foot ten right hander from the University of Texas. I saw Chase Shugart hit ninety six with his first pitch. Wow! Um, but then he was immediately sitting more ninety one, ninety two. I don't know if he. Uh, I don't know. I don't know what was going on there. Uh, but he did. He did hit that. Now, in terms of uh, position players, yeah, there were. I was also quite impressed. Some of them uh, do not necessarily have the defensive skills to complement their hitting, but there's a player, Spencer Brickhouse from East Carolina. Yeah. Who who played first base uh, for Bourne and uh, squared up a lot of stuff. Griffin Conine played right field for Katuit. I like Griffin, Griffin Conine? Conine a lot. Son of Jeff plays at Duke, I believe. Does that sound right? Yeah. I had a chance to watch him for a couple games during the ACC tournament, and I know he was high on Chris Mitchell's Cato when he sent us the uh, the spreadsheet that had not just the draft eligible players ah, but all the players okay. in college baseball, uh, so yeah he he's performing as an underclassman and when I saw him at the ACC tournament I thought that he had a chance to hit and hit for power in pro ball. He made some great contact. Yeah, I really like him. Mm, and then also Zach Cohn, Zach Cohn also of Duke, I believe. Yep, shortstop. 
Uh, or guy, a giant, or guy a giant me. person. Yeah, he's tall a, he's kid. A, yeah, he's not really. He did not look like because he played. He was playing shortstop with a player named Echo Thomas uh, from University of Michigan. Mm-hmm. Thomas is five foot seven. Cone is. I don't know. He, he's six like, three, probably. He's I think he's like a six three, six three, one eighty. Yeah, and he, I think he narrow yeah. build. He didn't look so narrow, Cone, in this particular case. I don't know. He did look like he's not going to stay at shortstop forever. But he yeah. he hit uh, the ball harder than anyone else during the game. Really? Yeah. Yeah. He did. He and uh, he and uh, Cone and Cone nine both. Um, Let's look good out there. The one guy that you didn't get to see, the guy I texted you about, Jeremy Ironman, Missouri State's shortstop, who had like mm-hmm. the monster regional, including a walk-off opposite field home run. Um, I've heard some first-round buzz for next year on Ironman. How did uh, you know? That, why, why was he not? He was not even on my he, roster. He's on Team USA. He's on the uh, collegiate national team. Okay. Okay. Yeah, I think I saw maybe one other uh, one other player got get um, picked off of one of the Grant Grant Coke. Is that a possibility? Uh, yeah, I think it's pronounced Cook. Okay, the, fair the enough. The Arkansas. Um, Somebody is, that, is he a catcher? Catcher, maybe? Might yeah. be a catcher? Oh yeah, you're exactly right. Yeah, Grant Cook, catcher. That's yeah, he's right. got some opposite field power. He's kind he of interesting. Also, I think he might be on Team USA as well. Uh, anyway, highly, I highly recommend it. It was a real pleasure. Yeah, the Cape is one thing I've never done that it's just – it's absolutely in my baseball pleasure zone. Yeah. It's just hard for me. It's like literally the worst place for me to try to get to from where I live. Well, it's almost the farthest if yeah. you're staying in the Continental 48, isn't it? Yep. Yeah. Those are the accommodations there are uh, somewhat pricey is another problem but the games are free as i say um now i mean of course with your with your uh, gravitas your cachet in the industry i'm sure that you would be sitting among the scouts anyway I'm, i don't i don't intend to <laughs> critique you here's another thing can i tell you uh to the best of my knowledge all of the games are available streaming all of the cape league games are available streaming through the various team websites wow i didn't know that yeah, I checked out. I did not go through all what eight teams, ten teams, ten teams, but um, the sample that I checked, all of them were available. You could, I mean, you could easily get to see every player there just by virtue. I, the three or four teams I checked, they all had, uh, they all had live uh, TV feeds through just through YouTube or like UStream. The number of pro affiliates that have streams now on MILB TV is like. <laughs> There's some, I don't know, there's some, like, New York Penn League teams and stuff that ha- that stream their games. Some Can-Am teams stream their games. <laughs> I'm not kidding. What's the one, t- what's the one that, there's one what in New Jersey this? that has, like, a higher quality stream than some of the AAA teams do. There is a, uh, there is a diversity of quality. Yeah. Uh, I've noted. For example, um, I happened to note at one point, I went to a, I've been to a couple of West Michigan Whitecaps games, uh, which I believe is what a low A affiliate of the Tigers. Yeah. And <clears throat> they actually have a pretty good stream. I've known because I've watched the game and I said, oh, what happened there? And I've gone back and 
It's a pretty nice stream. Yeah, uh, yesterday I watched uh, a game because it featured Danny Mendick. You're a big fan of Mendick. I know that. <laughs> you like Mendick? <laughs> Danny Mendick. Do you like Danny Mendick? <laughs> He's a White Sox uh, prospect. No, I'm not into it. You're not into it? No. Well, I like Danny Mendick, and uh, he's a he's a he's a, um, a talented fielder, and um, he's a product of UMass Lowell. You do not see a lot of uh, top level players coming out of UMass Lowell, but he's having a terrific season with the White Sox high A team in the Carolina League, and I happened to be able to watch him quite a bit uh, on uh, Winston Salem's feed yesterday. And that was also quite a good feed. Um, I try to make note also. I'll tell you this, Eric Longenhagen, of teams that uh, teams that will include pitch velocity in their uh, in their broadcasts. Oh, really? And I'm not I'm not diligent about it, so I've only sure. written down two: El Paso and Lehigh Valley. El Paso uh, and Lehigh Valley, they they both. Uh, they both Le- feature pitch velocity. Yeah. Lehigh Valley's – I was just at Lehigh Valley, and so I mm-hmm. – the scoreboard in the ballpark was not uh, accurate as far as the velocities go. The velocity wasn't. Yeah. So if it's from the same – it's if it's feeding from the same gun reading, then it's not good. No, it's good. Okay. I would regard it as gospel. If anyone was curious, by the way, Mendick is 5'10". <laughs> Yeah, that's a good – he's List, a very interesting player. He's listed at 5'10", 190, in case anyone was curious. <clears throat> he's a great player. Sure. A great – 23-year-old uh, in A-ball, absolutely great. No, high A, high A ball. Okay. Uh, not terrible. And, uh, well, of course, he was not going to proceed through any faster given his pedigree. He's a 22nd-round pick. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, we'll what, do you want to make a bet on it? I haven't been recording these very, very diligently. Uh, but let me start a file right now. Okay. <clears throat> let me start a file on my on my laptop. It will be called the uh, Longenhagen Bets. Longo. I'm going to call Longo Bets. I sometimes I call you Longo. Uh, now we have uh, bets. I forget the date of it. Uh, the ongoing, I'll call it. And that is um, the bet is uh, Mancata best. Year war, uh, better than G- uh, G- Gavin Chikini's career. Career war. Yeah. How's that going so far? Um, has Chikini done anything? I know he's, he's been up. Play- he's played a he's played a major league game before. Okay, so it's. It's going, it's going about as well as I anticipated it to be going at this point. Yeah. He's recorded a major league home run. Incredible. Gavin Cicchini has. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. And he, he's been worth a tenth of a win. Great. Take that, Yon Mankata. Yeah, uh, so date it. date for this bet. Taste what it. What we got here? 23 June. June 23, 2017. Here's another bet. It's going to concern Danny Mendick. Product of UMass Lowell, 22nd round pick in, what did I say, 2014, 2013, 2015, 2015. And what okay. do you want to say about Danny Mendick? I mean, can I just say he's going to 
record a positive war figure at the major leagues? More or less. What if you? How about we do more or less uh, career war than Homer Bush? <laughs> what is Homer Bush at? 1.8 career war. Okay. Yeah. Oh, definitely. Because I know definitely. I have my preference, and it's got a '70s vibe to it. So I'm going with Homer Bush. Okay. So more Danny Mendick. Also 5'10", 190. <laughs> Are they the same size? Yeah. Done. I so I'm choosing um, Danny Mendick. Great. Career War. I'll take Homer Bush, who had one good season. Okay. One good, one good season. Four percent. Homer Bush, nineteen ninety nine, was worth almost three wins. He hit 320, 353, 421 with a 4% walk rate. <laughs> Can I ask you a question? 374 Babbitt. Go ahead. In terms of this bet, if Mendick hits the 1.9 mark, right? Yeah. Do, do I win then? Or yeah. do do we have to wait till he retires? No. All he has to do is – all he's got to do is exceed 1 point at any, at any point. Okay. And how do we know when the Homer Bush? The, by the way, the rest of his career was was worth negative one win in case you hadn't that. done that math, listener. Okay. So all but all we need is Mendick to hit the one point nine mark, and then I am the yeah. big winner. You're the big winner. Okay. And what's the wager? I don't is it, know. Is it always is it always uh, a pitcher of sangria? That's fine with me. Okay. I think it should be always a pitcher. Of sangria. I got family coming in. To town tomorrow, and guess what we're doing and where we're going. <laughs> yeah, well, you get priorities straight. That's for yeah. Sure. Have we made any other bets that you recall? I mean, we have the over/under stuff uh, in general, which we should maybe take a look at and see how that's going. You want to? You want to? We don't have to do it now. We can talk about the draft or July second now if you want. Ugh, I don't that's... want to talk about those things. Really? <laughs> Did you watch any of the NBA draft last night? I watch no. just to see what other people are doing and how they're covering it. Mm-hmm. And um, Jill likes to watch the NBA draft with me because the uh, there you know there are more kids around and uh, that are like are at the draft and they're dressed in interesting ways. And last night we couldn't get over Tom Penn, ESPN's like resident former NBA executive. Who's like um, a walking cliche? Who mm-hmm. does does like the giant touchscreen for them? And like the touchscreen, it it could not be a more useless tool for visually. I don't know. There's just there's no reason to have this complicated touchscreen that just grinds his pace of speech to a halt because he's got to try to talk. And deal with the touchscreen at the same time, and it's As just he's not. Manipulating it. It's just not worth the time and awkwardness that it creates to show. Now this guy was drafted. Let's plug his picture into the team's starting five. Now there's a picture of this guy's head in there instead. Like he needs the, a co- co-host to be manipulating the screen. Probably, yeah. Just like, just like, as if someone were looking up the etymology of ketalier. But isn't he the? He's like the screen guy. Anytime you see Tom Penn on ESPN, it's just him staying, standing in front of a giant touchscreen like he's the only one at, at ESPN that knows how to use the touchscreen. 
<laughs> like that's why his, his job security is totally tied up in his ability to like touch the screen the right way. <laughs> yeah. That's what he does. So Jill was hey, very interested in this man's job. A brief uh a brief review of the over under prospect game reveals that you have you have uh, summarily won one tenth of the bet. Uh, this as it relates to Herman Marquez. I set the over under uh, for Herman Marquez at zero point seven wins. Herman Marquez, right-handed pitcher for the Rockies, he's already he's already accumulated one point three wins. Fangraphs WAR. Twenty-two year old. Yep. Yep. How's the Albert Amora bet going? Probably not well. Not really well. I took the over. Or no, wait. I set the over-under pretty high, and you took yeah, the you under. Did. I took the under. And I imagine that he's probably hovering around, like he's probably on pace for something just shy of a win. It's, yeah. Also, Isn't not he? having a lot of luck with Charlie Tilson, are you, right, at the moment? Yeah. All right. Hey, this is this we have fun together, don't we? Uh-huh. Just a couple guys chatting. It's it's um It's just I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm a year into the job now, right? And it's just mm-hmm. I know the ones that you're you have wrong or that feel wrong feel way worse than the ones you got right. Like mm-hmm. Herman Marquez, I was all about. Like I was all over Herman Marquez. Mm-hmm. I think I had him in my top 100 higher than anybody else did. And that feels great to, like, feel correct about that. Yeah. But, like, not as bad as it feels to be somewhat, even just in this one specific way, wrong about Charlie Tilson. Like, ultimately, when I wrote him up, I wrote him up as a bench outfielder, and that's fine. Yeah. But, like, and then, like, uh, you know, Keith Law and I talk and stuff, and every time we talk, he's rubbing my face and... Uh, Boba Shett. <laughs> and it's just like, I know. A, he's not a vaguely Mo- racist character from a, from a Star Wars movie. No, although, have I told you the story where I, I put him jokingly on when I was at ESPN and we were working on that draft? And I put, like, we were running down our, you know, top 100 lists and stuff. He was down somewhere towards the bottom of mine, uh, listed as Boba Fett. Uh-huh. As a joke, and I just forgot to change it and send it out. Like I sent the list out to all my scouting and team contacts. Like, <laughs> hey, what do you think of this list? When it's as it said, Boba Fett, and I only had one person get back to me and ask, like, who the hell's this? <laughs> Everybody else just knew that it was a joke that I forgot to. You forgot to clean up. That I forgot to clean up. Yeah, you didn't clean it up. No, but apparently Boba Fett has cleaned up a whole lot of things. Hey. Yeah. Hey, let me what? ask you this. Uh, Royce Lewis went uh, number one overall. I think you had him in your top four or five. Or yeah, whatever. he was he went fifth. Number, yeah, went number overall uh, out of a high school in California, I assume. Jay Sarah, is that right? Mm-hmm. To the, uh, to the Twins. The slot for that pick is $7.7 million, and they gave him roughly $6.7 million. So roughly a, roughly a million dollars less than the pick value. Mm-hmm. So in theory, this will help them sign someone else elsewhere. Kyle Wright 
uh, was signed, uh, was picked fifth overall by Atlanta out of Vanderbilt. You know, you already mentioned Bukowskis moving down. Kyle Wright did not look particularly good facing Oregon State. His, his last start. But the pick value there is $5.7 million, which is $2 million less than the number one overall pick. But he got $7 million. Mm-hmm. So he actually got more than the first overall pick. I understand that players are not picked in precise order of value. They have different uh, significance to different teams, etc. cetera. Uh, what's the reason for giving Kyle Wright $1.3 million more than the pick value? Yeah, I guess I haven't specifically talked to anybody up top, agents or teams, about why things shook out the way they did last week. Um, I know that the Saturday before the draft, when talk of Lewis going one first spun through my ear holes, uh, I was surprised by it. Lewis, based on what I had heard, had a home at three with San Diego, potentially. They preferred Gore, based on what I heard. Their board lined up like Hunter Green, Mackenzie Gore, Royce Lewis. Right. And when, um, Sorry, when you say home, you mean uh, like he's not going to get past that if he's still available? Um, no, because uh, I do think they would have taken – Gore instead. But, like, Lewis was in play at number three overall to San Diego. Uh, whereas Brendan McKay, who the Twins were also heavily considering at number one and had been for quite a while, uh, his next realistic landing spot would have been at pick four. Uh, so that combined with Lewis as a Boris client – uh, made it sort of puzzling that the Twins thought they had leverage or uh, perhaps some people thought they were just using Lewis as leverage against McKay as far as negotiations go. I had also heard from some teams picking towards the back of the top 10 that they thought Lewis might get to them. Mm. Like if Lewis... If Lewis would have slipped past San Diego at three, he was unlikely. He was either. I heard that the Braves might pass it pass on him at five if he were there, and if if that were the case, then Lewis would have fallen all the way all the way to eight. So he wouldn't have gone to Oakland who had the sixth pick. He wouldn't have gone. I don't to think Arizona so. Who had the seventh pick? Philadelphia would have selected him with the eighth pick. Is that yeah. your implication? And I think there were people there that thought that there was a chance that that happened. Um. So Lewis's stock as the draft approached was volatile because there were these rumors that the Twins were talking to him at one, but then there were also these rumors that teams towards the back of the top ten thought he might get there. Um, so, and again, uh, he's a Boris client. So yeah. ultimately ultimately, what I think happens is you ha- because the, bo- the bonus amounts are so uniform up top now, the gap between the first pick bonus and the second pick bonus is smaller – than it was uh, last year and in previous years, that you almost it almost seems like some of the other teams up top in the top five that picked behind Minnesota used that to their advantage, where they realize like, well, if we specifically prefer 
uh, McKay or Wright to the other guys, we can just make sure that uh, that player and his advisor know that we're willing to pay for for him to if he gets to us, which is what I think happened with Wright and McKay. Uh, those two guys, it looks like we'll have the in excess of seven million dollar signing bonuses. Mm. Um, so yeah, you know, anytime, anytime there's a change to the draft process, whether it's procedural or financial, there are always unintended consequences. And it looks like right now, uh, there are, if there's a certain, maybe it has to do with the tier of players, you know, cause I kind of thought this drafted five players in the top two tiers with green and right top and then Lewis Gore and McKay as like the next three and if you pick five in a five player draft and just tell one of the players that you really like that no don't take an underslot deal at one or two or three or anything like that we'll pay you in excess of seven million dollars at five make sure everyone who picks ahead of us knows that you won't sign for less than that uh, it's a way to move guys back and there just aren't it's just harder for the teams that pick ahead of you to to deal with that when the the bonus amounts marginally are uh, the difference is less. So maybe that had something to do with why Lewis ended up going one. But I, I'm sure the Twins also just wanted to have a more well-rounded, deep draft class. So like taking Lewis at one is going to give them a shot to sign Blaine Enloe who they picked in the third round, but who was in my top 30. Um, or Landon Leach, the big, like, six-foot-four-inch Canadian kid who they took in the second round. Uh, so, yeah, there's... The draft is interesting. Some teams play more games than other teams do. Some of them do it almost to their detriment, <laughs> where they try to get a little too cute, I think. Mm. Um, but, yeah, it was an inter- it was an interesting draft. A, uh, talent aside, because the talent in this year's draft was just kind of bleh um, in general. But, but some of the, the uh, tactical maneuvers? Yeah, because it was a new year with new rules, and so it's always just sort of interesting to see how that stuff plays out. Yeah. When I look at certain, there are certain teams whose picks I naturally find more interesting, because I know uh, at least to the degree that I understand the the inner workings of those front offices they you know you say this oh this pick is representative somehow of this uh, the ethos of this club so like Milwaukee of course uh, Milwaukee has done a lot of interesting work over the last year plus mm-hmm. <clears throat> um, and they picked they picked Keston Hura who was notable for being a talented hitter in the uh, what was he was the big west Whack. Yeah, you see, no, not the WAC. The WAC is like Seattle and oh, yeah. WCC. Yeah, WCC. Yeah. Is West it? Coast Conference, Big Maybe. West. No, Big West. You you typing it up? Yeah, sure. Why not? Tom Penn, you got a you, you get a touch screen there. <laughs> Dude, I have some of I videoed. I used my phone to video some of his segments last night. <laughs> I want to tell you. Can I can I critique one part of your top 100 list? Sure. What's that? I don't think Jesse Foppert is going to make the majors. 
So I was a little bit confused as to why you included him <laughs> among your top 100 prospects. <laughs> Who's on Jesse there? Fa- Jesse Foppert's not on there. No, he's not. No, Jesse Foppert hasn't played no. affiliated baseball since 2009. That would be funny, though. Okay. <clears throat> All right, tell me about July. Say something about July 2nd. Uh, it's coming up. It's a it's a date on the calendar. It's coming up. Yeah, yeah. It's the international signing date. When when what players who are sixteen or older uh, qualify for that for to be signed? Who's going to be signed by whom? How will you report all this information to us? Well, I've got the the sortable board will is almost done. Yeah, and I've got most of the reports written for my top. 25 guys it's this year's class and there's always guys who kind of slip through the cracks a little bit uh this year's class is just okay the two there there are two guys at the very top of the list who are just obviously head and shoulders better talents than the rest of the class there's another wander franco um Another one? There There's was, another one. Wander... This is the how third one. Franco's... This is the third brother named Wander Franco. He's, He's the best brother? one. Yeah, they're all brothers. Um, He's a switch-hitting shortstop with some power from both sides of the plate. Mm-hmm. Might uh, grow, outgrow shortstop, but has certainly has the hands and arm to stay there for a while. Wander, Wander is a beautiful name. I mean, I understand that it... Probably there are different implications, given the different languages. But I'd like to name Wander. Yeah. So he's supposed to sign with Tampa, uh, and then Daniel Flores. Who there's some there's some people I've spoken to who prefer Flores now to Gary Sanchez at the same age. Uh, Sanchez had better power projection and more pure arm strength than Flores does. But the the profiles are pretty similar. It's like Flores is a guy with elite arm strength and potential plus power. Just they're not as insane as Sanchez's, uh, Sanchez's tools projected to be. But Flores is like a more polished defensive catcher now than when Sanchez was that age. There was some doubt that Sanchez could catch long term because his receiving and mobility were both horrendous. He was just he just had a cannon. Um, so Flores, there's some people who think that because of that, that Flores is like a better prospect than Sanchez was at the same age. I tend to, I kind of disagree with that. Um, give me the guy with the plus plus raw power projection and arm instead of the guy who's maybe a little bit more polished defensively at age 16. Um, but uh, but there are definitely people who think that. So those are like the two guys at the very top of the class, and then after that, you're sifting through. Um, a bunch of different types of prospects who you have to kind of put into uh, buckets and then weigh against the other players in that bucket before you can sort of rank the class as a whole. Because there are players, there are players in this year's July second class who are already six three two oh five, and then you've got guys who are five eleven one forty. And they're the same age, but the way the way you project sixteen-year-olds who have body types that are d- that different is as different as their 
body types are. So that's one of the things that's just like it's wholly unique to the rest of prospect writing. You just have to deal with this one bizarre aspect of July 2nd that only applies to July 2nd. And that's that the bodies and projecting them, it's more a part of this process than it is with anything else because the kids are younger and just have more growing to do. I've actually gotten into debates with a couple people at front offices over the last couple weeks about how to project bodies. So like typically I'll go um, – Eight, like 18, 22, 26 are sort of like the checkpoints I have mentally for, you know, w- physical growth. Yeah. So you try to imagine what the player is going to look like at 18 if he's 16 uh, and then uh, project the body out to age 22, which is basically close to what a college draftee is. And then 26, which is sort of like the end of your – prospect them if you're not in the big leagues at 26 it's kind of like i'm not gonna i'm probably not gonna write about you and there are just some people who think that that's too much they're like 22 23 that's kind of where you should stop so i've been thinking about that uh it's specifically related to jake berger the white Sox first round pick out of missouri state who is a big guy um and sort of on the fringe for me of being capable of playing third base right now uh and if you continue to project his body out to age 26 as i tend to do then like no way in hell is that guy a third baseman at that age if you keep projecting on the body but there are people who just be like well no he's 22 like this is this is it um and the one thing i haven't gotten to do just yet because I've jumped right from the draft into the July 2nd stuff because the turnaround time is pretty quick, uh, is like go back and look at recent college draftees yeah, f- from four or five years ago and like see what the body looks like now compared to what it was like on draft day. Oh, yeah. Well, we did something a little – we did it. We, we performed an act that is kind of a cousin to that, which is we looked at the third baseman who had been selected in the first round, I think, mm-hmm. and we went through – and determined what sort of fielder they had become, right? And it was roughly 50-50 split, guys right. who r- remained at third and guys who moved off. And honestly, it didn't, <clears throat> It was pretty consistent in terms of, like, what you might have thought relative to what the how he looked in college or whenever, you know, he was coming up. Do you want to do it right now? Let's Let me run through, what do you think, 2011 draft or 2012 draft? Uh, do twenty. I mean, as far back, yeah, far oh, further okay. back. Okay, all right. So, high, uh, college. We're looking at college hitters, right? Okay. Okay, Anthony Rendon, basically the same, right? Yeah, he's a he's like he's like a little bit he's like a little bit thick, but I think it's you like you never worried about him, right? Yeah. Uh, Corey Spangenberg. Did he ever have a great body? He's fine. Sort of slightly built. Has it changed a lot? Um, no, I would say no. George Springer, basically the same. Yeah. Uh, CJ Crone has probably gotten a little bit bigger. 
He was 17th yeah. overall to Utah. Um, but he was never going to be better than a first baseman defensively. Right. right? Colton Wong, basically the same. Yeah. So, yeah, cursory look, Joe Panic, basically the same. Cursory look says, yeah, probably shouldn't project all that heavily after age 22 on the frame. Mm-hmm. But given so. Jake Berger's body currently. Sure, yeah, I know. Like, look, I have concerns. That's why I had him ranked. Uh, when we did the draft live chat, that was someone in the chat pointed out that, like, most of the way through the first round at least, uh, where Berger was picked and where I had him ranked was the biggest gap. Mm-hmm. In uh, where he was picked and where I had him ranked, so he's got a little bit of a stomach, does Jake Berger? He's in better shape now than he was last summer with Team USA. Yeah, you know, mm-hmm. I could. He made a couple fine plays at third base when I watched him at the Fayetteville Regional, but of course, at other times he did not. Well, here's another. Uh, this is not necessarily comparable, but I remember a few years ago I saw Adam Duvall playing for the Richmond Flying Squirrels. I actually saw him make some pretty good plays at third base. I don't know if anyone ever regarded him as a as a real like. Did I say I said third, right? Mm-hmm. I, don't, I don't think anyone really regarded him as third base prospect. He, he was just sort of there. Yeah. Um, he moved to left field. However, I think he's played mostly left field for the Cincinnati Reds. And like last year, he recorded decidedly above average fielding numbers as a left fielder. And, like, overall, it came out to slightly above average production, as if he were a center fielder playing, or, you know, like an average center fielder. The same sort of value, not necessarily, obviously, a slightly different skill set. Um, we could probably do a whole podcast about how moving down the defensive spectrum isn't always necessarily bad, especially if you're just much a much better defender at a place further down than you are at a place that looks sure. more favorable. Right, yeah. That's why That's why you're going to be hearing about Danny Mendick soon. Elite second baseman. I don't know why you're laughing. Mendick. You know, I gather, now reflecting back on our conversation, I think that you might see some sort of, you might see that I might be making a sly reference to genitals now that I look back over it. Sure, if you want to call it sly, I guess that's a little generous, but that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I, I, that's not, it, it, not all, it has nothing to do with my fascination with Danny Bendick. It is purely has to do it concerns his ability to play baseball. Sure, which is why I... Uh, You're the one. <laughs> uh, Richard Lovelady... Has yeah struck out thirty eight in thirty innings at high A and walked just two. Okay, so there you go. All right, I gotta get going. Where are you going? Uh, I have to run an errand, a very special, specific errand. Yeah, they can't talk specific. about. I uh. I'm going to pull some annual ryegrass from my yard. Got it mixed okay. in with my grass seed. Hey. Huh. It's always a real pleasure to speak with you, Eric Longenhagen, even if you do make perhaps less than sly references to human anatomy, in particular the privates part. 
mm-hmm. of the anatomy. Yeah, it was all my fault today. It that was. Uh-huh. I really like Danny Mendick. It's going to be better than Homer Bush. Sure. Thank you, Eric Longenagin. All right, you're welcome, Carson Sestouli. Stick around for one moment, but in the meantime, I will say once again, thank you, Eric Longenagin. That has been Eric Longenagin, lead prospect analyst for Fangraphs.com. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio. <laughs>